Welcome. This is Sam Dick from The Breakdown. She had the dream of a life, or so it would seem. A college degree, a six-figure job with a car, trips to Europe. And then it started sliding away, losing over $200,000 in savings to drugs, getting fired, and ended up living in her car. This is the story of Ashley McCarty and her long climb out of a nightmare, and now her new mission in life. I think it got to that point when I was living in my car, bumming people for showers, uh, actually using the restroom in a bucket, and then going to jail and sitting in that jail cell and being court-ordered to rehab. I did not realize I had a problem until I had to stop. And then when all that happened, I knew that I couldn't go much further and I had to do something about my life. Ashley, welcome to The Breakdown. Where did you grow up? London, Kentucky. Yep, uh, I was born and raised there on like a 350-acre farm, uh, had both my parents, had a younger sister, eight years difference, and so grew up in London, went to South Laurel High School, graduated with a 4.0, was a straight-A student, obviously, and uh, just had a great life growing up there. Had you experimented in high school with alcohol or marijuana or drugs? No, I mean, well, I take that back. One time I had tried marijuana. I tried marijuana, didn't like it, never did it again. And uh, didn't use anything ever again until I was addicted to opioids. Your family was would be considered well-to-do? Oh, yeah, well-to-do. They, um, My family actually owned a car dealership in Manchester, Kentucky for 25 years, and um, they, they were a God-fearing family, and it was just, it was a great, it was a great way to be brought up. I mean, it, I couldn't have asked for anything better. You had a really good life. I had a really good life, yes. So you go to college. Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. I went to college at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, graduated with honors 4.0, got a bachelor's in psychology. And um, right after that, like a month later, I got a phone call from a pharmaceutical company and went for the interview. And he said, because of graduating with honors and having a 4.0 and things like that, he was going to hire me. He said I was the youngest he had ever hired. I was 22 years old and I got hired uh, into pharmaceutical making over $150,000 a year. If I had your mom or dad here to ask them this question, what would be the answer to, at that point in her life, did you think Ashley was the dream kid with the dream life? They would say yes. They would say yes, everything, gosh, had gone as planned, if if not even better. And I had this excellent career, and they were so proud of me. I mean, they were so proud of me. So they would have thought, yeah, I was the perfect child. Was it a job that you really liked? Did you love the job? Loved the job. Loved the job. It wasn't just a job to me. It was a career. And um, so I got a salary, but also got bonuses. So I strived really hard to accomplish goals and meet and exceed goals. And um, I loved it because we were always going to places like Las Vegas or Miami on business trips, things like that. And I would always exceed my goals. I was the number five sales representative out of 10,000 in the nation. I was an international sales winner. Actually, I was a national sales winner two years in a row and then became international 
sales winner. I went to Venice, Italy and Paris, France and Hawaii. I mean, I was, you know, the saying living the dream. I was living the dream. <laughs> yeah. You are living the dream, as you just said. Was there, though, inside some turmoil of some kind that was starting to lurk or had always been there? Tell me about that. Yes, I I had everything going for me. Like like you had said at the beginning, from the outside looking in, it looked perfect. But I suffer from, like, anxiety and depression. Um, actually, I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I never really... I never really realized that. I just knew I was so sad and felt so alone. But I had everything going for me, and I didn't understand why I felt that way. And um, I think that's why I began to self-medicate is because I was so sad and so alone. Tell me about the self-medication at that time. Okay, well, I had a couple surgeries, one of them being my wisdom teeth taken out. And so I was prescribed pain pills. And then after that, I had dry socket, as a lot of people get when they have their wisdom teeth taken out. And the cure for that was they gave me more pain pills. Well, before I knew it, I was addicted. I had I had no idea I was addicted, though. I didn't know I had a problem. I just knew I liked the way they made me feel. They I suffer from perfectionism also. I like everything to be perfect. I strive to be perfect and I beat myself up when it's not. But those made me feel on top of the world and they helped me not be so sad or feel so alone. And they, they helped me with social anxiety and to feel included. And so I started using them on a daily basis. How, how did you get them once you had been through the surgery and used your supply of pain medication? Well, I also sometimes get migraines. So back Back in the day, in 2000, I guess it was 2008 or nine, they wrote me opioids or pain pills for migraines. So I was taking them for migraines on a daily basis. But, I mean, I wasn't just taking one. You know how it says one every so many hours. I mean, I was taking three or four or five, you know, every 30 minutes. So, but I still, that's, that's, people don't... I didn't know I had a problem, though. I still was in such denial. I didn't know I had a problem because they were prescribed to me at the time. So I thought I was okay. You had a demanding job that you were really good at. How were you handling the job mm -hmm. and taking the, the meds? At first, I mean, actually, at first, I was meeting my goals and earning these trips um, while I was on pain pills and opioids, because at the beginning I could handle it. And then I didn't know I was addicted until I tried to put them down. And I just, I couldn't, it, it made me feel unwell. It made me feel sick physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, everything when I did not have them. But, um, eventually after taking them, my performance started to slip I was showing up to work late. I was missing work. I wasn't meeting goals. It definitely was not exceeding my goals. And uh, I got, I actually got wrote up for having slurred speech while speaking to physicians as a pharmaceutical sales representative. How old were you about at this time, would you say? Mm, I would say I was about 26, 27. Did it never occur to you at, at any point, even for a second, hey, something's wrong, I need help? No, it didn't. It, it did not. Not at that time, because um, 
Well, I mean, the, the scene, the, the, the life that I was living in pharmaceutical sales, everybody was, you know, everybody was partying or having a good time or taking something or, um, it, it just, I felt like I just fit in. I felt like everybody else was doing what I was doing. So why would I have a problem? But I guess looking back, they weren't doing exactly what I was doing. You know, maybe there were people who could take something and then put it down and never pick it back up again. I could not put it down. I could not put the drugs down. Did your employer at any point when you were written up ask, are you okay? Never. Not. I was never asked, are you okay? Is something wrong? What's going on with your performance? Why are you missing work? Why are you calling in so often? And um, to backtrack a little bit, right before I got wrote up, I was on a business trip in Las Vegas and uh, on a business trip, keep in mind, and I tried to commit suicide. I tried to kill myself. And looking back, I went to the hospital and then I went to, it was called the Monta Vista Psych Ward, which I will never forget, and stayed there two weeks. And no one from my company ever came to the hospital or ever came to the psych ward or ever checked on me or anything. And I didn't. this didn't come to realization until actually just a couple of days ago when someone within the, my job that I have now asked me, did, did someone accompany you to the hospital or see you at the psych ward within your organization? And I was like, no, no, now that I think of it. No one ever did. As best you can, going back to that horrible moment when you try to take your life, why did you do that? What was going on? Well, I can remember we were all out that evening, all the representatives just hanging out, having a good time. And while I was on these opioids, I had started using cocaine as well because there were other individuals that were using that. And so I thought, well, I can do that too. And, um, I became highly paranoid. Um, using made me very paranoid. And I thought people were, um, making fun of me or talking about me or out to get me. You just become very, very paranoid. And I just became very insecure and my social anxiety went out the roof and I became very anxious. And I just went from, went to to zero state and thought I just I just want to die. That's where I would go to. I would just say I just I just want to die. And I would say that quite often and people would be like, "Oh, Ashley." But what they didn't know is I was so serious. I just wanted to die. What did you take that day? Uh an entire bottle of uh, Xanaxes. I had saved up because when I would go to like I, by that time I'd started going to a pain clinic and I would get a bottle of pain pills, a bottle of ibuprofen, and a bottle of Xanaxes or Valiums, whichever pain clinic I went to. And uh, actually, I had saved up a bottle, and um, I took the entire bottle. Were you scared? Of, of what you had tried to do? Did you realize? No, no, I wasn't. To be honest, and it's very sad to say, I was so delusional on these drugs and cocaine and you know, Xanaxes and Valiums and all that, that when when they saved my life, I was actually mad. I was so mad that they didn't let me die. And then you're let out to go ahead and continue your job, mm-hmm. almost as if nothing happened? Yep. Uh, they discharged me from the psych ward, and 
I got on a plane and I can remember flying back into Lexington. I lived in Prestonsburg at the time and I flew back into Lexington, got in my car at the airport and drove back to Prestonsburg for a couple hours and went back to my, my house and was just expected to uh, just carry on. And, and still, even at that point, you still didn't think, oh my gosh, I just tried to kill myself. I need help. Right. No. No, I didn't think that. I just I just knew I was depressed and I didn't know what was heightening that. I didn't realize it was the drugs. I just knew I, I might have needed um, help with my depression, but I did not correlate it to drugs. I didn't I didn't think it was, had anything to do with pain pills or anything like that. I didn't know they were addictive. I didn't know I was addicted to them. I didn't know they were, you know, high potential for abuse and things like that. So at this point, uh, you now are back on the job. Mm -hmm. How long before you were fired? I would say about a month. Tell me about that. Well, that's when they called me in. They wrote me up, um, said I was slurring my speech to physicians, and they had documentation from physicians, which I never saw. But they had document documentation saying that, that I was inappropriate and things like that. Then um, they put me on a two-week pro probationary period. So, of course, I thought, well, I'm going to do my best these next two weeks because I've done nothing wrong and I'm okay and I'm, i i got to keep my job. But um, as things had it, uh, they brought me back in and they said, we need the keys to your car. We need your cell phone. We need your, you know, company credit card. You know, we're, we're letting you go. And I still, I thought it was like a conspiracy theory. Somebody was out to get me. You know, I hadn't done any of this stuff. Some, I was just such a good uh, employee and sales rep that there was probably somebody else that was just uh, wanting to take my job or something. I mean, it was crazy thinking. And looking back, I mean, I was so sick. I was just so sick mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I was sick. And again, no one from the company ever said, do you need help? No, never heard and never heard from anyone ever again. Still, um, the my direct supervisors and and things like that at the time, um, I, I've never heard anything from them ever again. Does that baffle you when now when you look back at that in terms now of their lack of a response? Now it does. Now it does because now I I'm clear minded and I see that people can get into recovery and that there actually is help. There is help for this. You don't have to suffer, and you don't have to suffer silently. You can get help. But I didn't realize that I needed help, and I didn't realize there was help out there for what I was going through. I just thought that was the hand I was dealt, and that was just how my life was supposed to be. So you lose your job, and you go back home to London. Is that right? Yes. And uh, you're, um, as we've talked uh, previously, you uh, rent a mm -hmm. place from your parents. You have right. to pay rent mm -hmm. and get another job. And you think, yes. well, I'm going to go ahead and start over here. Um, yes. I, I thought, well, I just got to, what they say, pick myself up from the bootstraps and just move on and keep going on. And so I, I rented that townhouse off my parents and, um, you know, they always taught me responsibility and things like that. So that's why they charged me rent. And I completely understand that because I, I needed to be a responsible individual because I was not, obviously I just lost my career. And so that encouraged me to get another job, but I still didn't put down the pain pills 
because I, I didn't think I had a problem with them. And at that point, how much were you using, would you say? What were you taking? That time I was taking hydrocodone and Percocets, and I would buy or I would get a prescription, and it might last me. I mean, we're talking a month's prescription, and that might last me a week. First thing I thought of when I woke up, and the last thing I thought of when I went to bed every single day. How'd you hide this from your family? Because at this point, they're nearby. And you're seeing them, I I assume, because they live in the same community, right? Right. You know, I I think of that, and I think I I'm really not for sure how I did hide it, and if because I don't want I don't want it to seem like as if they knew and they were just like oh she'll be fine because they weren't like they were not like that. Um, my family cared about me or cares about me, and um, I think they knew I was on pain pills, but. There wasn't a lot of education about pain pills back then. That was when it, the first, the epidemic started. And there was not a lot of education, you know, coming from physicians or coming from the community, especially like there is now. Now there's workshops and forums and things like that talking about the epidemic and, and how there's potential for abuse. But I think there was that lack of knowledge. I think there was a lack of knowledge because there was definitely not a lack of caring. Are you moving from job to job? Yes, I went through um, three or four different jobs, um, and I would always, um, I, I hated, I used to love when I was pharmaceutical, I would love getting up and going to work. I, I would say, I get to go to work today. I was one of those people, I get to go to work because I enjoyed it. But then I was, I hated every job after that because I was so bitter and I would not perform like I should and I was very argumentative very angry individual very emotional individual because your emotions are are just erratic when you're using you're just up one minute down one minute sad happy crying and um, I would either make it to where they would fire me or I would quit I mean there would something would happen and I would just quit or I would make it to where they fire me, and and so I went through them like crazy jobs. I, I mentioned at the beginning of this that you had saved something like two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Yes. What uh, happened to that? Well, and I saved that money through pharmaceutical because, like I said, we got ex- or um, we got checks not not just salary but we got bonus checks and so I would always save them up I just kept saving them I really didn't realize how much money I had saved up but I realized how much money I'd lost when I went to the bank to get some money and it said insufficient funds I had a savings and I would transfer a little over to checking and transfer a little over to checking by that time I was buying pain pills off the streets because nobody would write them for me anymore and uh, so I was buying you know, a, whether it was Percocets, that's like $30, $40 a pill, and I'm taking like 10 a day. So you can, you know, you can do the math. I mean, I was spending some money on these pills, and then I just ran out. I just I spent $200,000 in like 18 months or a year or something like that on drugs. At one point, you, you get to a point from what you told me earlier where you couldn't pay the rent. What happened there with your dad? Right. Um, well, they talk about tough love. That's what I got. That's what I needed, though. Um, I didn't. I did not need to be enabled at all. I can, I can remember my dad came to the townhouse and he said, "You owe rent," and I said, "I don't. I don't have any money." And he said, 
I suggest you go to the homeless shelter then. Mm. Yeah. I was like, and I see now why he said it. You know, I, I see now it was that tough love trying to get me motivated, get me going. Let's let's do something about this. But at the time, you know, I was so furious and I could not. Could not believe my father had said that to me, but I wasn't going to the homeless shelter. So I packed up some things that I could, whether it was jewelry or whatever, I packed up some things I could pawn and I got in my car and drove off and left all my belongings that I had in that townhouse and uh, started living in my car. At some point during this, you start using meth. Yes, because I could not find pain pills on the street anymore. They were cracking down on that and I went to go get some from from someone one day, and they said, well, we can't find any. We don't have any, but we have this. And I was like, what is this? And they were like, that's meth or, or ice. And um, that was the one thing I said, I would never use meth. Like, I can remember saying that. I would, oh, I would never use meth. And I said, give it here. Let me try it. And I fell in love. Fell in love with it. What was it that it... That- took you in with meth it made me feel like superwoman it made me feel like i could do anything accomplish anything it helped my perfectionism um so i thought it uh at the moment which the feelings are always i have to emphasize temporary like this goes away like you feel on top of the world for like two minutes or something and then it's all gone and everything comes rushing back in all your emotions and Everything comes flooding back in. So this this high or this feeling or feeling of wellness or whatever is temporary. At one point, you used some meth that was extremely uh, intense. Mm-hmm. And what did it do to you? I didn't realize. I don't know what was in it. I don't know what was in it because you never know what's in that stuff anyway. But um, it actually... It, it burnt my skin and started coming out of my face. <laughs> I know it sounds very odd and very, I don't know, just talking about it. Just, I can picture myself back then, but it, it started, I've still got some scars and some, like a burn spot on my cheek where, where it was coming out. But I can remember, um, looking in the mirror and I said, well, I've already messed up my face. I've already got these scars because back then it was horrible. I mean, it was like, I mean, it was open wounds on my face. And I said, I've already destroyed my face. And I can remember I got some more meth and smoked some more meth and just said, oh, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this. I mean, looking in the mirror with my skin falling off my face saying, oh, well, and then just kept using meth. That's what it does. I mean, you just, you don't care. You don't care anymore. I didn't care. You're arrested. Yep. Before you can inject. Yes. On my way to inject. I was going to try the needle or injecting for the first time. Um, we were in the car on our way because I wanted to try it because I heard about it and said, well, this, this disease is progressive, by the way. And so that was just my next step, my next way to, to uh, that. I thought I could feel even better. And then those blue lights got behind us, um, which I think was a intervention from God. And um, we got pulled over, and everybody in there had warrants on them. I had warrants on me, and I had no idea I had warrants on me. And we all went to jail. You go to jail, mm-hmm. and is that the time where you go, this is the lowest of lows. I don't want to stay here. I can't do this. 
Yeah, well, at the beginning it wasn't because I can remember when I got put in that holding cell, I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm in jail. He was like, okay. I said, well, come and get me. He said, oh, but no. He said, you are going to stay there. He said, because I can actually sleep tonight. Mm. And that that hit me, you know, that this is this disease doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family. You know, my dad had been up for nights worried, or for days, nights, months, however long, worried about finding his daughter dead. And he knew I was safe because I was in jail. I I guess then I was court-ordered to treatment. I went to Alabama, and I left that rehab because I I just didn't like it. And I just thought I was entitled to leave, and I went back to jail. I'd say the second time I went back to jail was when I said, I got to do something about this because um, I always joke and say I'm not jail material because <laughs> I don't do well in jail. Um, and so the second time I went back to jail, that's that's probably when it hit me. So recovery sticks for you at this point and you make it to a year. Yes, I, I went to treatment. I went back to treatment. I got quartered back to treatment. Uh, Cumberland Hope Community in Everett's, Kentucky, where I stayed a year and uh I was in denial a lot there. Like, I wouldn't admit that I had um, started stealing for my disease and um, manipulating and hurting and harming people. I wouldn't admit that. And then uh, I, I finally came to realization in order for me to stay clean and be in recovery, I had to admit my wrongs. And I had to make my wrongs, if not right, I had to reconcile with people I had wronged in order to stay in recovery. So I started talking and telling just exactly who I was. This story has a really good ending. Yeah, yeah, it you, does. You go from recovery to working in addiction recovery care. Mm-hmm. And then last summer, uh, after being off drugs, clean for, for many years, mm-hmm. you find this opportunity with the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce where you can really reach out and help people that you can relate to uh, that want a second chance. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this job. Well, so I am a business liaison or employment specialist for the for the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce. And gosh, I just have to tell you, I still have to pinch myself when I say that because I, I can't believe where I am today, you know, compared to almost seven years ago living in my car. But I go and help with my counterpart, Sonia. We go around the state helping employers create a recovery-friendly culture and reduce stigma surrounding substance use disorder. So we've got employers that want to be transformational and give second chances, but they need to look at things like their policies and procedures and handbooks and training and how they're recruiting and retaining employees, and that's exactly what we do and what we help them with are those policies and procedures and things like that. How do you feel? Do you think, is this a miracle? <laughs> I think it's a miracle. I do. I mean, if if you could just see who I was back then and who I am today, it is a miracle because I always say I wasn't given my old life back. I was given a new life. Um, I have a new life, and I don't regret my past. I regret some things that I did in my past, but that individual um, – That made me the strong woman that I am today. Last question. The keys to saving your life, those moments, it sounds like your dad and the tough love was an important part of Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Anything else in particular that stands out that helped you turn this around? 
I'll tell you what helps me keep it turned okay. around is support. I have an awesome support system. My family is amazing. My mom is my best friend. I have a lot of friends in recovery. And I think a support system is so important when you want to get in recovery because everybody's, and I believe it, some people don't, but I believe everybody's bottom is different. Everybody's reality check is different. You know, jail and rehab, that, that worked for me. That worked for me. But I know I couldn't have done this without the amazing support that I have. And, and, and I, Owe that to the people, you know, at the rehab that I went through, my family, my friends, everything like that. The 12 steps, I went through the 12 steps. I owe it to the 12 steps and working through some resentments and harms and things like that. So uh, I just believe support is so important and not enabling and tough love is important too. And for someone to say, whether they're an employer or a friend, hey, is something wrong? Do you need help? Exactly. Um my life is exactly the way it's supposed to be right now because I believe everything happens for a reason and nothing by mistake in God's world. But I think back and I look back and I think, how could my life have been different if someone had just said, are you okay? Do do you need to talk? Can we talk about this instead of keeping it underground and not discussing it? Ashley McCarty, thank you for all that you're doing to give other people a second chance in life. And congratulations on this beautiful new life. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate this. I do. I'm, I'm a very blessed individual. So thank you. And for those of you who have listened to this podcast, thank you for dropping in. Until next time, I'm Sam Dick with The Breakdown.